Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva. This is episode 19, and I'm very pleased to welcome my guest today, Dr. Julio Montaner. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Marcus. My pleasure. And we're, uh, it's going to be a bit shorter. We're, we're looking between an hour to an hour 15 podcast. So uh, I just want to jump right in and uh, we'll get the conversation going. So um, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from. Well, uh, um, my name is Julio Montaner, as uh, you indicated in the introduction. Uh, I'm uh, originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, I, um, I did my uh, 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 medicine studies in uh, Buenos Aires, at the University of Buenos Aires. Uh, and having completed my uh, early training uh, in, uh, in Argentina, I was uh, looking for an opportunity to um, sort of validate my credentials and expand my experience abroad. Uh, part of the motivation was that uh, my dad was at the time dean of the medical school, chairman of various uh, departments and uh, other important positions. Uh, so I always had this uh, um, deep uh, necessity to uh, uh, reassure myself that uh, uh, I was appropriately qualified, uh, both subjectively and objectively, uh, so that I one day I could uh, um, work with my dad, who I loved and uh, admire quite a lot, and uh, and hopefully uh, have my credentials be uh, indisputable, so that uh, that was not an issue. Uh, as it happened, uh, 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 and largely because of my dad's. Uh, encouragement, I, uh, I, uh, I spent the summer uh, traveling uh, this particular year. Uh, I, I was in Europe. I, I met a number of people. Uh, I was very excited about the possibility of going to work in, uh, uh, as a trainee, as a postdoctoral fellow uh, in, uh, in, in either in England, France, etc. And uh, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> I got a very nice reception, but no job. Uh, so, subsequent to that, my dad suggested that uh, I accompany him to a, an international meeting that was taking place in Uruguay, next door to Argentina, and uh, I, I, I did so. My dad didn't stay around for the, for the meeting, he just did his thing and he moved on. Uh, I stayed for the three days of the meeting, and lo and behold, I, uh, uh, I walk into this uh, conference room uh, to attend the lecture on the subject that I was very... Um, uh, interested on that, that I always found fascinated but very complicated. And, uh, and there is this guy presenting um, in a language that I didn't quite master at the time. My, my children would argue that I still don't master, but that's okay. Uh, and I, um, I, I sit at the audience and start listening to this guy presenting. And it was really a revelation to me uh, how I could understand everything perfectly well, um, even though he was uh, talking about, you know, uh, complex issues in a language that uh, I was not fully uh, familiar to me. And uh, I, I just had the realization at the moment that uh, the reason why uh, this topic was so uh, easy to understand when he was actually explaining it, uh, in contrast to uh, when I tried to learn it from my professors back at home, it was because he actually understood what he was talking about, uh, as opposed to be repeating something that he had read or, or been told or whatever. And, and that was uh, a huge thing for me at the moment. Um, I became very motivated by his uh, presentation, and I... Um, uh, I actually started to think about, you know, different ways of doing things, etc. Much of what he was talking about were, were uh, physiological uh, research experiments uh, in, uh, in animals, uh, looking at the pulmonary function, which was the area of my interest at the time. So at the end of the, of the meeting, um, I decided I was going to approach him, but there was a funny twist. Uh, there was a second person speaking at this meeting, uh, uh, he was from uh, down south in the United States. Um, in those days, it was still fairly prevalent. Uh, he was smoking his pipe, and he had a Nashville accent on top of that. <laughs> so I didn't understand anything he was talking about. 
there are no disasters. I didn't understand the English. Uh, so when I uh, I went to approach these guys, they were they were having a coffee uh, uh, at one of the booths, and I was very strategic and I approached him from the side, <laughs> the other side, so that the professor that I was interested on uh, uh, could not engage with the with his colleague, and um, uh, the guy was extremely kind. Um, he engaged with me. He apologized to his friend. Uh, he uh, invited me to sit down and uh, share a coffee with him. Um, I started asking questions. Uh, he, he received all of that very well. In fact, by the end of the conversation, he said, uh, you know, Dr. Montaner, um, those are very interesting questions. And I wonder if you uh, wouldn't like to come and, uh, and do those experiments in my laboratory, to which I promptly responded, oh, no, thank you so much, Dr. Hogg. His name was uh, Jim Hogg. Um, uh, I said, no, I'm, I'm just asking because I'm, I'm interested, I'm curious, but uh, you know, I, I want to do clinical research. I'm not interested in uh, basic uh, animal research. And, and he looked at me seriously. Uh, he said, you know, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. The best clinicians I know, the most successful academicians, they all spend time learning fundamental physiology. Uh, and that was the key to the success because whether you believe it or not, uh, it gives you an insight into um, uh, uh, human physiology that is actually something you can build on no matter what you're going to do later on. I look at the guy and said, well, thank you so much. And he said, well, look, look, look don't, you know, uh, here, this is my name, this is my address. Um, think about it. If you change your mind, let me know. And so be it. I said, okay, well, thank you. Very nice meeting you, whatever. And you have to imagine, I was about 24 years old at the time. Uh, Jim Hogg was a, a professor of uh, pathology at UBC and uh, at St. Paul's um, in Vancouver. Um, I don't mind confessing, I didn't know where Vancouver was at the time either. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was like all news to me. Um, um, I left the meeting. Um, my father was not no longer in Uruguay at the time. And uh, so I ran into his sort of uh, second in command. Uh, and I tell the guy, um, this is what happened to me. And I tell the story. I show him the thing I got from the name of the guy. I said, do you know who this is? I said, no, I have no idea. Uh, I said, this is Professor James Hogg. I mean, this is the guy. And he started giving me his CV or whatever. I said, Julio, this is huge. I said, well, you know, but I'm not interested. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. So he grabbed me. He took me to meet um, uh, what I would characterize my father's sort of uh, competitor, number one competitor in the field of respiratory medicine in Argentina. And he says, here, you tell him what happened to you. And I tell him. And he says, Julio, listen, you're going from here to Vancouver, and I'm going to let your father know that I sent you there. Uh, <laughs> I thought, this is crazy. So all the cockiness, if you want, disappeared. I got really nervous. I couldn't sleep that night. Uh, the next day, I go back to the conference. I, I meet Professor Hawk, and uh, I'm now quite shy on my part. I said, you know, I hope you don't mind. I didn't offend you. But I've been thinking about it, and uh, I'd like to reconsider. Said, yeah, no problem, absolutely. And uh, lo and behold, he, uh, he offered me the job. Uh, I wrote uh, to him when I came back home, uh, and within months I got an offer. And uh, uh, 1981, I uh, came to Vancouver uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship in respiratory medicine, and that was sort of transformational. Um, it, uh, it, I was really committed to doing a year or two, maybe, of training, uh, but I really wanted to go back home and, uh, and work with my dad, who was a respiratory specialist. And I wanted to uh, hopefully uh, use this experience to build a solid career and, and uh, be able to do uh, something different uh, uh, when I came home. And it was not to be. And so at that time, so when you, so that was uh, 1981? 1981. And when did your, interest because I, I guess at that time because well I'll, I'll throw the question to you which is that um, 
St. Paul's is unique in the sense that the type of work that the type of work that you're involved in um, is quite unique to St. Paul's out that way. And when did that start to take off? So what happened was that uh, I uh, I was happily doing my work. Uh, now where research was uh, going well. Uh, my first surprise was when um, three months into the job, uh, Dr. Hogg used to uh, invite me uh, often to go for a lunch break or walk around the hospital or the park or whatever, uh, just to chat and uh, catch up and see where things were going. And so three months into the job, he says to me, uh, so what's your plan for next year? And I said, I got no plans. <laughs> and I said, well, Julio, we need to talk about next year. I said, well, but next year is nine months away. I mean, come on. I said, no, no, Julio, that's the way we do things here. Uh, we need to plan for the future. And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, what, what do you have in mind? I said, well, uh, I think you're doing very well and I, I trust you're happy and you're enjoying what you're doing. Uh, I, uh, I thought uh, you could say another year. And I said, well, bring it on. <laughs> uh, you know, I was really enjoyed my work and, uh, I, and we were starting to do some interesting stuff. Um, so that was 1981, 1982 came around, um, uh, not related to the subject matter, but I, I met Dorothy who eventually uh, became my wife and uh, we started a family, but that, that's a separate matter. Uh, but that sort of brought some stability to what I was doing. And uh, so um, came 1982, uh, uh, by that time, it became apparent that there was an epidemic uh, uh, emerging in North America. Uh, uh, eventually, became AIDS. Eventually, became HIV. But in all honesty, um, we didn't even know in, in, in Vancouver, in Canada, uh, that this was a, a real thing or it was a real threat. Uh, you know, uh, these things happen or not, and come and go. Uh, uh, it was only reported in a bunch of cases in the various cities in the uh, United States. Um, uh, and the epidemic in, in Vancouver really didn't hit until 83 or thereabouts. Um, so around that time, uh, my plans continued to be to uh, do respiratory medicine. And, uh, and so uh, I, I, I was having increasing conversation with Jim Hogg about uh, uh, what my future was going to be like. And so one day he said, um, you know, Julio, uh, if you really want to uh, uh, fulfill your dream of uh, being able to go back home and, and develop a significant academic career and have a public health impact and so on and so forth, um, you probably need to complete a full training here. Uh, two years of research uh, is a good base, but you, know, you may want to just join the residency training and do the whole thing all over and just get it over with and you'll be perfectly qualified and I look at him and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a uh, big match. Um, and now you have to remember that meant uh, uh, revalidating my degree and seeing exams that I, I already had sad. But nonetheless, I, I, I thought about it. I talked to my, well, eventually Dorothy became my wife. And uh, I said, okay, uh, let's do it. So he took me to the chairman of the Department of Medicine. Uh, he, he put forward a very good work for me. Um, of course, I had to submit my CV and a bunch of stuff. And uh, John Rudy, the chairman of the Department of Medicine at the time, he, uh, he offered me a job as a resident at UBC St. Paul's. So I was basically based at St. Paul's. As I was progressing through that, HIV was becoming a significant concern. By 84, the virus had been discovered. Uh, still, the numbers in British Columbia were relatively uh, small by comparison. Uh, but I started to become clinically involved. And uh, as I became a respiratory fellow, um, uh, then uh, by the mid 80s, uh, 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 the, there was a pneumonia uh, that was characteristic of AIDS, previously unheard of virtually. It was called pneumocystic pneumonia. Uh, and this, this thing was uh, devastating people uh, infected with HIV. Uh, it would uh, really uh, develop into a very serious pneumonia most of the time and eventually kill people right, left, and center. So it was a real driver of the epidemic in the, uh, in the 80s and early 90s. And so I, uh, uh, naturally, because I was the youngest member of the team and there were so many people now 
now it was taking off. Uh, I, I was I was being sent to the emergency room to look after one after the other after the other patients with uh, uh, age-related pneumocystic pneumonia. Now, eventually, we made a couple of observations. The details are not really no longer relevant, uh, but they were sort of uh, significant and led me to believe that uh, we could try uh, an, un um, an anti-inflammatory treatment uh, as adjunctive to the antibiotics to try to crush this pneumonia and bring it into uh, some sort of uh, response. So what I came to understand is that uh, people with HIV didn't have so much a deficiency of their immune system, but over and beyond that, they had an immune dysfunction whereby uh, their immune system uh, uh, was weakened, but it was at the same time out of balance. And so when the pneumocystis organism affected the lungs, uh, they mounted a disordinate uh, humoral antibody response uh, with a very significant deficit of the cellular immune response. And so they would be drowning on the immune globulins that were actually secreted to affect the organism, the pneumocystis, uh, and they were dying before the antibiotics uh, could actually deal with the pathogen. And so what I did is I started to use uh, anti-immune drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs, in this case, corticosteroids, uh, to suppress the inflammatory response. Uh, and in doing so, uh, we bought them time for the antibiotics to respond. And then what it used to be very low rates of survival became very high rates of survival. Uh, and that led to a paper that eventually began to turn the, 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 the tide in terms of uh, managing people with HIV who had this particular pneumonia. Uh, as I was doing more of this work, the Americans in particular, uh, the group in San Francisco, uh, uh, wrote a very complimentary editorial in a very significant sort of uh, scientific journal about Dr. Montana's work in fact, if I tell you the truth, it was before I actually submitted my paper for publication. So much so that when the paper was actually submitted, it, it, it was rejected at the same time that the editorial came out in the competing journal. So uh, in, I was devastated. Uh, I went to see Jim Hogg, who was still my mentor, uh, and I asked him for advice. He said, Holy, you know what? Just call the editor. Tell him that I said you should call him. This was a big thing. Uh, here I am calling the editor uh, on behalf of Dr. Jim Hogg uh, to tell the editor that actually he had made a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, the editor said, yeah, Julio, uh, you're right. We made a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, and so he went on. He published the paper. Uh, and, and that became a very uh, widely uh, cited paper. I started to get invitations for international conference and the like uh, at a time in which I was still a, a, I was a chief resident at St. Paul's. Uh, so this was around 86 now. Uh, by that time, uh, the first anti-HIV drug became available. Uh, that was ACT. Uh, it was a, a, a specific drug to affect the virus. And through the work that I had done, even though uh, infectious diseases was not my thing, uh, I had come to realize that it didn't matter that we were able to fix the, the, the complication, the infectious complication that patients with HIV were uh, going through. Uh, at the end of the day, the underlying immune defect related to the viral replication uh, was going to be always the, the, the end game uh, because it would uh, lead to more complications and more complications and opportunistic infections and cancers and so on and so forth. So I decided to get involved in that trial with John Rudy, who was the principal investigator for the first ACT trial in Canada. Um, he gave me an opportunity to do that. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, by 1987, uh, when I finished my training, by this time I was married and, uh, uh, and I had changed my mind, partly because of my wife, uh, and uh, I decided, and there's some pressure, uh, 
uh, to stay in Canada, uh, which I don't regret one bit. Um, I, uh, I, 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 I had a conversation with, with John, John Rudy. Um, he was um, keen to uh, uh, develop a further expertise in HIV in the, in the hospital here. Uh, and I always remember uh, him coming to my office uh, that particular Friday. Uh, he uh, arrives and he says, Julio, um, I have a problem. Uh, I need help with my HIV problem. Uh, the details don't, don't matter, but he says, uh, I don't know what to do about it. And I say, well, John, I mean, you know, quite obviously what you need is uh, somebody young and uh, uh, with an academic focus who wants to build a program and, uh, you know, somebody like me, but who's interested in HIV. And uh, he looked at me and he said, uh, will you do it? I said, no, no, I want to, I want to go back to respiratory. And uh, he says, if you, if you do it for a year, uh, I'll get you your position in respiratory after that. I said, okay, you got a deal. And that was in 1986. I basically came uh, onto faculty on 87 and I never went back to ask for my respiratory appointment. Uh, I remember vividly people saying, uh, you know, are you sure what you're doing? Uh, you know, this thing could be over uh, before you know it. And, um, and, and I always rely on the, on the tuberculosis framework. Um, my dad was a TB specialist within respiratory medicine in particular. And, uh, and he, he used to tell me many stories, uh, but the one that uh, resonated with me was when he uh, used to say, look, Julio, in 1956, the year you were born, uh, I had access to streptomycin. Uh, uh, it was an experimental drug. It was given to me and we, we tried in a bunch of people who we, we thought they were about to die. And it was a miracle drug. Um, it worked for a time and then patients developed resistance and uh, it didn't work anymore. Uh, but building on the success of a, of a streptomycin uh, and combining with other drugs, we were able to overcome that uh, phenomenon. And eventually we came up with a cure. So by the mid to late 50s, we actually had a cure. And yet we have not been able to resolve TB globally because it takes more than a cure to solve an epidemic. And so, you know, even very early on, all of these resonated with me. Lo and behold, uh, I became a champion of uh, combination antiretroviral therapy, uh, much a la TB, uh, using the same formula. Uh, and uh, ultimately, by 1996, within a decade, uh, we had uh, our own data uh, that showed that uh, triple drug combination therapy uh, could actually uh, uh, shut down viral duplication, allow for immune recovery, and in doing so, stop people from dying uh, from age-related causes. Um, that became the theme of the 1996 conference, which, as it happens, uh, we were organizing uh, in Vancouver. It was a large international conference, which went down in history as the the birth of uh, highly active antiretroviral therapy. We call it uh, also HEART. Um, and uh, and I, I have to tell you, uh, my mom and dad came to the Vancouver conference in 1996, uh, and it was a tremendous uh, opportunity and a great deal of joy for me uh, to be able to share the success of our work with my dad. Uh, and then take some time off with him and my mom and uh, my family uh, up the Sunshine Coast. Uh, and, uh, and the truth is that by the time we came back from that holiday, they went back home, uh, the impact of our new treatment, which was embraced by the province of British Columbia, even before we announced the results at the conference, uh, were already uh, palpable in our clinic. Uh, mortality from AIDS started declining immediately uh, 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 in the second half of 1996, and it has been declining ever since. Yeah, there's a couple of things in there I just wanted to touch on. Um, first of all, I think it's really funny that the there was a good job at dangling the carrot to get you to take part in that program. I actually was quite impressed with that. That was pretty funny. It's quite smart. Um, yeah, so I just thought that was kind of a funny thing there. But um, so at that time, so heading into 
I guess we'll say, uh, maybe we'll say right around 1996 there. Um, like, cause you even mentioned that people were saying to you, like, are you sure you want to take that position? Like it might be over soon. Obviously, you know, now we're at 2021, you know, that, that <laughs> proved to be not true. Um, so I guess just kind of related to that was the, what were some of the social and cultural attitudes towards now at that time in 96, was it then known as HIV or was it still known only as AIDS? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Uh, HIV was discovered in 1984, uh, and so we knew there was a virus in 1984, and that's what opened the door for the treatment. Um, as for the societal sort of attitudes towards HIV and AIDS, um, I mean, it's been talked about a lot, and uh, I could go forever, but uh, uh, it was challenging, uh, challenging to say the least. Um, I, uh, uh, I, you know, um, people today may not remember what it was like back then, but all of the most affected populations, including homosexual men at the time, uh, were very seriously disenfranchised uh, around the world. Uh, the fact that the epidemic was so predominant in the south of the world, the Sub-Saharan Africa and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it brought with it a whole bunch of other social, uh, political connotations. It was a, it was a huge um, learning experience for us because uh, as, as you probably appreciate, uh, uh, myself and many others, we came at it from a biomedical perspective uh, and we were very uh, poorly prepared uh, in terms of our educational background and the like, uh, to deal with all of the multiple other layers uh, that uh, uh, HIV brought with it. Uh, there was also a tremendous uh, uh, mistrust on the part of the community, the most affected communities, uh, for uh, any efforts uh, that were uh, undertaken uh, uh, from not trusting industry to not trusting academicians or researchers. Uh, and so, you know, we had to prove ourselves. And uh, whether it was ACT UP in North America or a number of other uh, organizations, uh, they, they were very upset, uh, rightly so, about the fact that uh, uh, profit was ahead of uh, saving lives. And, you know, in all honesty, uh, this is a theme that uh, still continues today, although we have made tremendous progress, particularly in our mess. But, uh, but this is still something that is incredibly prevalent. Pe people think, oh, well, uh, all of this is over. <laughs> well, it's not. If, 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 if all of that would have been resolved, uh, we would be in a very different place when it comes to the epidemic today, and we're not. And uh, we can talk about more of that uh, as we move forward. But uh, it was a challenge. In fact, when in 1996, uh, we first presented our data, there were, there were two clinical trials, one that I led, uh, the INCAS trial, and the other one, the Merco 3 5 trial, uh, that was uh, led by a, a colleague of mine, uh, Trip Gullick from New York. Uh, when both of those came together in 1996, uh, and eventually were presented together with a bunch of other data at the Vancouver conference, as well as the new proposal for highly active antiretroviral therapy, which we sort of uh, came up with with a, a very uh, prestigious group of colleagues uh, that came under the International Society USA uh, banner kind of thing uh, to, uh, to develop those guidelines. When, when we put all that together, uh, we became a target, uh, uh, act up, uh, sabotage the meeting, uh, they, accused us of uh, trying to uh, kill them with ACT, which by then was regarded as a poison. And uh, so it took a lot to uh, overcome that kind of situation. But, but you know, we had the science on our side and we eventually were able to show that we were on the right track. Granted, uh, there were a lot of challenges uh, uh, when it comes to the uh, practicalities and the feasibility of the strategy that we first uh, unveil in 1996. And yes, it was not perfect and it needed to be uh, optimized, 
But you know, but we did the homework, and we within the next decade uh, we were able to get rid of a bunch of the more toxic drugs that were part of those regimens and replace them with others that uh, had a better safety profile. And eventually, uh, uh, treatment became a, a reality, not only for the north but also for the south. In fact, uh, my colleague, Dr. Mark Weinber, uh, who passed away a, a few years back. Uh, uh, Mark from, from Montreal, uh, who became the president of the International Society shortly after the Vancouver conference, uh, made it a, 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 a sort of a, a focus of his work as the president of the International Society uh, to advocate for treatment to come to the south of the world. Uh, those were the Mbeki days and so on and so forth, another nightmare. Uh, uh, but, but he really uh, uh, put a tremendous amount of uh, effort, as it did the IAS and a number of others, uh, to ensure that uh, this came to be. And eventually, we, we took the conference to Durban uh, back in the day uh, uh, to really open the door uh, to promote treatment uh, in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, which at the time was unheard of. It was, it was, it was not even a proposition. So. Uh, yeah, lots of challenges. If you allow me, um, uh, I'll tell you an anecdote that, uh, I'll tell you two anecdotes that are very close to my heart. Uh, the first one was when uh, uh, we were uh, doing the early work on ACT and the, and the British came out with data arguing that ACT was uh, not only didn't work, but it was toxic. Uh, and it made it into the news, uh, CBC news in those days, I, um, I used to wake up with a radio clock, um, uh, and it was the, I think it was the early edition, but it was something like that. And uh, the early edition comes up, and uh, you know, I wake up with the early edition. Uh, first article, or first uh, uh, issue that they're covering, uh, uh, data from the UK shows that ACT doesn't work. And my daughter, uh, Michaela, my eldest daughter, uh, uh, who would have been four years old at the time or something like that, uh, runs into the room, jumps on me and said, daddy, 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 ACT doesn't work. What are we going to do? I said, don't worry, honey. Uh, don't worry. They're confused. Uh, we got data that shows that it, it, it actually works. It's, it's going to be okay. Uh, so that's to show you the, the degree of the penetration that all of these ongoing challenge and confusion and, uh, you know, if you think COVID is, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is challenging, well, HIV was very challenging. And the other anecdote that I often uh, refer to is that when, when, uh, uh, when my children went to school, uh, they would come home and they always tell me the story. Uh, they were asked, what does your father do? And they would say, well, he's an HIV and AIDS researcher. And they asked why. I don't remember ever my father being asked why he was a respiratory physician. I don't remember ever he, him being asked why he was interested in tuberculosis. There is no why. Uh, why is uh, my friend a cardiologist, a rheumatologist? No, but HIV AIDS, why? What's wrong with your father? Uh, you know, uh, and, and these are the kind of subtle uh, things that we were, I mean, those are the subtle ones. I don't want to go to the non so subtle, but uh, this is something that persisted. Uh, I, I had uh, very senior people in my own institution, and I won't name names, and I won't tell you who, and I don't tell you when or how or where, with well, tears in their eyes uh, telling me, I wish you were a cardiologist. So much that uh, institutionally, we like to celebrate the success of our program and so on and so forth. I tell you the ambivalence about the work that we do still today, uh, it haunts us. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very challenging thing. So um, it is what it is. Uh, we're making the best out of it. And uh, we continue to fight the fight. Uh, and we're quite proud of it. But uh, I never thought that I would have the um, prime minister of my country, my uh, country now being Canada, uh, being my number one enemy back in the day. <laughs> and he was. I never thought that I would have the minister of health 
1990 conference, um, uh, sorry, that it, uh, I, I beg to differ, at the 2006 conference in Toronto, where I was a keynote speaker, and for the first time I presented our own new proposal that revolutionized the global management care and control of HIV AIDS, the treatment of prevention strategy, which we can discuss in detail if you want, uh, to tell me to my face, you know, Julio, you guys are the problem. And I look at him and I said, uh, Minister, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, yes, because the work that you do promotes the conducts that promote the spread of HIV. That was the federal minister of health of this country. So when I said at the time that I was ashamed of who were leading this country, I, I wasn't meaning to be un-Canadian. I meant they were un-Canadian. And, uh, and I still insist today uh, that that kind of attitude is actually maybe less public today, but it's still very pervasive and very persistent. Anyways. Well, I, you brought up a really great issue because that just highlights the fact that when you politicize uh, medical issues or things of that nature, the, the detriment that it can cause. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible that he actually had the guts to come up to your face and say that. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. And, and this was at an award ceremony where I was being celebrated and he was supposed to be celebrating me. Uh, I mean... And I won't name the name, but you guys can go and figure out what I'm talking about. I mean, it was not pretty. Uh, and, and so, again, uh, so I'm just going back to uh, the tumor prevention story. Um, as I was telling you, um, 1986 comes around. We come up with a treatment that it works. And, you know, we could have said, bingo, uh, we'll sit on our laurels and just uh, ride this wave, and that would be great. Um, but you know, the, the unique feature of the program in British Columbia is not only that we purchase, distribute, and supervise the treatment for everybody infected with HIV in the province, but actually we monitor it exhaustively so that we can actually identify what's working, what's not working, what needs to be tweaked, and so on and so forth. And so by, uh, by the year 2000, by 1989 actually, uh, I started to see something that it was counterintuitive. Uh, uh, People, and don't get me wrong, I mean, people still could die from HIV AIDS, but, but the rates of death were plummeting among people who were engaged in treatment. Uh, so what that means is that the denominator of the number of people living with HIV in the province of East Columbia was actually growing. Uh, yet, the number of new infections started to plateau and decline. And so we asked the question, could it be that treatment is interfering with HIV transmission? Because at the time, that was felt not to be possible. And I explained that. What happens is that these treatments are what we call virostatic. They are not virucidal. So virostatic means that they stop the ability of the virus to reproduce. But the virus, the genomic material of the virus, lives within your cells. So it was well recognized that if the cell is infected with HIV and you're taking treatment, the, the basically uh, the, 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 the system is protected because the virus cannot reproduce. But if you interrupt the treatment or you don't take it properly, then the, the drug pressure that we call it uh, disappears and the virus wakes up and it, it comes back right away. So if you can imagine a situation where I'm now infected with HIV and I have a partner, uh, my partner is not taking treatment. The argument at the time went, if Julio is taking treatment and the virus is suppressed, he's doing fine. But if now he uh, gives a kidney transplant to the partner or an injection with his blood to the partner or has sex with the partner, then because the partner is not taking treatment, the virus will explode and that person gets infected. In fact, there were cases of, say, kidney transplant-related uh, uh, transmission, so on and so forth. So there were reasons to be concerned. Uh, and so what we did is we looked at the baseline syphilis transmission in the province, and we said, well, 
let's see what happens because if there are more people living with HIV, there are less new infections, and there is more syphilis going around, particularly in the gay community in BC, guess what? Uh, safer sex is not the answer. It, at least not the answer to the reason why we're seeing the cases going down. And so we started to look into various data sets. Uh, we looked into the data sets in the downtown east side uh, where we had a cohort of uh, injection drug users that uh, was very well characterized. Then we look into the international cohorts uh, working together with UNAIDS, the United Nations AIDS program. And we, anywhere we looked, uh, we were able to show that the, the number of people that were on treatment were effectively being subtracted from the denominator pool, name, namely the number of people that could be donors of HIV, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and so we published that in The Lancet in 2006. It became a plenary at the International AIDS Conference in Toronto. And that's when I had this exchange with, uh, uh, with a minister who did not believe that this was a solution whatsoever. Nonetheless, I was very fortunate that at that conference, uh, I was able to introduce this topic to Stephen Lewis, who became a huge supporter and champion of the cause. And shortly thereafter, also at the conference, uh, 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 I was asked by uh, a Vancouverite, actually, Alison Lawton, uh, to come and meet a friend of hers. <laughs> Lo and behold, it was President Clinton. So here I am telling President Clinton everything about it. And the president says to me, Julio, we will support you. The funny thing was that at that time, I could get no support from public health. I could get no support from the scientific community. I could get no support from the community, from the medical community, from anybody. But I had Stephen Lewis and President Clinton. And with their support and the IAS, International Society, who eventually I became president of, on this sort of platform, uh, I was able to take this to the rest of the world, eventually secure the support of the United Nations AIDS program, where Michelle Sidibe became the executive director. And this became uh, my obsession, my focus, and, uh, and what I needed to do. At the same time, uh, I was fortunate that a good friend of us, uh, Terry Salmon, a former uh, uh, chair of the St. Paul Foundation, uh, uh, agreed to introduce me to uh, the premier at the time, Gordon Campbell. And although I had to squeeze into his office under a false pretense uh, and upset a whole bunch of people, uh, within 15 minutes of being in his office, he grabbed my, my materials and he says, Julio, with your brains and my money, we're going to make this happen. And, you know, he was a man of action. Uh, he immediately uh, uh, summoned uh, uh, his Minister of Health, uh, uh, Mr. Falcon at the time, and, uh, and with him, uh, we agreed to set up a plan to implement treatment prevention, which at the time was regarded experimental uh, uh, in any other jurisdiction around the world. And BC was actually the first place that implemented it. And it, it, in all honesty, it, it wasn't all that difficult to do the math. Uh, all I was asking is, let's make treatment available to as many people as we know they are infected so that uh, they can have the best possible clinical outcome. And secondarily, uh, not only prevent death and AIDS, but actually prevent HIV transmission because we were convinced that treatment would render people virtually non-infectious. And it took, a, I don't know, a good uh, decade, but by 2015, we managed to get scientific consensus. In fact, we brought the International Conference back to Vancouver. I had the pleasure of chairing that uh, final conference, uh, well, final, final in the terms of the story, uh, uh, where the United Nations, WHO, uh, the Vatican, and everybody else came together through our personal lobbying and involvement to say, yes, treatment as prevention is the way to go. It became part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals agenda. Uh, we took it to the African Union and uh, every single country uh, uh, endorsed the proposal. We actually 
crafted a new goal, uh, uh, basically saying that if by 2020 we were to achieve at least 90% of the people uh, diagnosed, at least 90% of those on antiretroviral therapy, and at least 90% of them virologically suppressed, by 2030 we would see a 90% decrease on uh, death and a 90% decrease in new infections in every jurisdiction that apply this. Now, you may want to ask me, have we succeeded? And the answer is yes, in British Columbia. Where are the rest of the world? Uh, that's a problem. Uh, unfortunately, uh, if I were to be 100% uh, candid with you, I had to say uh, we have fallen behind badly. Why? Because of the lack of political will. And why? Uh, well, because AIDS fell off the agenda. Uh, is, there is no longer the political um, uh, focus, the public attention on AIDS as uh, once upon a time. And so um, uh, when I went to the United Nations, uh, the government of the time, which will remain unnamed, uh, uh, they said to me, and I had this telephone conversation with the Foreign Affairs Ministry, uh, Dr. Montaner, thank you for the invitation, uh, but we're going to decline. Uh, however, you are welcome to go, and we are not going to object, as if. Uh, and so I went to the United Nations by myself uh, with a few of my colleagues, uh, but Canada was not there. Uh, I, in that interim, I was in the White House three times advising the Obama administration, uh, but I was not welcome in Ottawa. So that tells you uh, we have a problem. In 2008, uh, which would have been uh, just after we announced treatment of prevention and the whole conversation was beginning to uh, become significant, um, uh, when the economic recession hit, uh, it became very convenient for governments around the world to say, sorry, uh, we can't invest anymore. And so if you look at global investment on HIV AIDS, particularly for uh, low and middle income countries, uh, it, it plateaus in 2008 and it never recovered. And the, and the mantra became, we need to do more with less. Well, I mean, there is only a limit that you, you know, how far you can stretch your resources. And so when, when we fail uh, to deliver on the 90-90-90 target, by 2020 at a global level, don't look at me and say, Julio, you failed. No, we didn't fail. No, the political leadership of this world failed. And they're still failing, despite the fact that many like to pretend that they are doing a good job. They are not. It's quite surprising, um, particularly when you discuss um, the fact that Clinton was, at the time, President Clinton was, uh, had, he had your full support. Um, because generally speaking, at least if you're just talking about Canada and, and our neighbors down south, on most issues, they tend to be more conservative leaning, you know, even a liberal, an American liberal versus a Canadian liberal, we tend to go a little further to the left, just, you know, cultural, social, you know, that's just the way it is. So it's just very surprising to hear that not only was the Canadian government not supporting you, they're actually against you, and that you had so much support from from President Clinton? Well, you know, to the credit of the current uh, federal administration, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, was in my office uh, during the campaign uh, at the time in which uh, he was third on the polls. Uh, my colleagues uh, made fun of me that I even wasted my time meeting with him. And I said, look, I meet with everybody all the time. Uh, I just need everybody's help to make this happen. And uh, uh, we had a great meeting. Uh, Heli Fry was the one that facilitated it, and I'm grateful to her support because she's been terrific. And, uh, and so uh, uh, within weeks of having been in my office, uh, he wrote me a letter, which I have a copy sitting here on my, uh, on my uh, uh, window. And uh, uh, he said, dear Dr. Montaner, uh, if we were to uh, form government, uh, we will uh, commit to uh, endorse the 1990 and we'll act accordingly, blah, blah, blah. Well, I thought it was great. My colleagues were still making fun of me, saying, well, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Uh, lo and behold, he won the election. Uh, he appointed Jane Philpott as his uh, Minister of Health. 
I never had the pleasure of meeting Jane Philpott before uh, she was the minister. On December 1st, a month into her administration, she actually endorsed the 1990 before I even met her or even asked her to endorse it, uh, uh, which I was extremely grateful for. We did a lot of good work with uh, Minister Philpott back in the day, uh, and I am again grateful for her support. But the reality is that um, uh, in Canada, uh, health is a provincial jurisdiction. And, uh, and it doesn't matter what the federal government wants or, or says, uh, if the provinces don't want to do it, it's not going to happen. And uh, I'm not going to point fingers across the country, but I can tell you that British Columbia uh, has brought AIDS under remarkable control. Uh, we have reduced morbidity mortality for greater than 95%, new infections for close to 90%, and our epidemic today is actually contracting significantly. Uh, why? Because people, my, my guy, their, their average age is my age. And so the, 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 the top end of the cohort uh, is dying of old age. Uh, and, and that's what we were hoping for uh, when we started this work 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and so this is happening. Uh, uh, and, and yet, the many jurisdictions across the country, uh, they rather uh, uh, make other things their priority without realizing, and we have shown this in excruciating detail, that treatment prevention prevents morbidity, prevents mortality, prevents new infections, and saves money. In fact, every dollar that you invest today has a huge return on the investment to the point that within a decade, you are saving money. You know why? Because people don't get sick, so you get to close the age war, as we did uh, here about a decade ago. Uh, you, you can actually contract the clinics and redeploy the resources to do other things. Uh, uh, all of that because treatment and prevention, it really s deals with issues. Now, do we need a cure? Do we need a vaccine? Of course, that would be great. I mean, we could never eradicate HIV as make it go away completely until we have all of the tools. But today we have transformed an epidemic concern in British Columbia into an endemic concern, which means it's a sporadic event that you know may happen like here and there by an accident or whatever, but uh, it's, it's incredibly gratifying. In my last year of law school, I took, um, in each semester, I took a medical law class, medical law one, medical law two. And I believe it was in medical law one um, on the final exam, actually, which was good. I actually prepared for that one appropriately. But the essay question was, well, actually, let me back up. So in, in the tutorials and the lectures from, from the corresponding week, um, there was a, a whole lecture on treatment versus cure. And at the time we were looking more at obesity uh, just because in the UK, it's a costly, it, it just costs the government a lot of money. And the UK health system is very similar to that of Canada that's public and et cetera. And one of the, in the tutorials, when we were discussing it, we did discuss a little bit about um, HIV just because treatment is prevention versus cure, it's relevant in that sense. But what was so interesting was that um, it was, so obesity and heart disease were the two that I remember specifically. And the data from basically just saying, like, how do you really cure obesity? Well, you can't really cure it, but you can implement measures that will lower the rates of it. And the money that you will save is huge. Like, and that was pretty much undisputed in every article and every research paper that we saw. And the same effect was with uh, heart disease. And on the final, I actually referenced uh, HIV because luckily I had a lengthy discussion with my dad to study for that exam. <laughs> so that was quite helpful. But bringing it back to you, um, was that a, a hurdle uh, when, it come, when you're talking about the, the 90-90-90 program um, or implemented plan? Um, it conceptualizing that rather than looking for a quote-unquote cure, this is actually the most effective way because it, it just seems 
it seems so obvious. Like that's the thing when you look at the data, but you know, convincing people seems to be a bit troublesome at times. You know, I, I, um, I think there were many layers uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, objections to the uh, implementation of a program like uh, 909090 from the practicality of it. Oh no, it cannot be done. Uh, to the the fact that who you're out of your mind. I mean, you're asking uh, uh, for viral load testing in the south of the world where they don't have access to that technology. And I kept on saying, guys, if we don't set up ambitious goals, if we don't set up a, a, a viral load testing goal as a parameter, then viral load will never go to South Africa. Uh, so it, it's a chicken and an egg phenomenon. Uh, and so I managed to um, convince my colleagues to suspend their uh, animosity for these particular areas uh, and, and, and launch the 1990-90. The same day that we announced the 1990-90, uh, Roche Laboratories discounted viral load testing by 90% in the south of the world. Uh, just to give you a sense how some of these things can be overcome. The other thing was uh, there is enormous... Um, uh, let alone the people that don't care, the people that, 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 that refuse to accept it, and you know, all of those are over there. But even within our professional circles, there was a whole uh, large group of people in the public health domain, some of them very highly placed uh, in positions of great power, uh, who would argue that medicalization of public health would actually destroy the effort. And in fact, uh, they rely on faulty assumptions, saying that if you were to um, uh, uh, adopt a, a policy that treatment stops transmission and treatment was less than 100% effective, uh, these would be associated perhaps with uh, sexual disinhibition, uh, for example. Uh, then the, the potential partially suppressive effect of treatment on transmission would be significantly overwhelmed by the sexual disinhibition and the whole thing would be a disaster. To which I would respond, buddy, it's simpler than that. Uh, I'm asking to give treatment to the people that need treatment because they need treatment so that they don't get sick and they don't die. And you and me, we have an obligation to ensure that they understand that this is the best for them and they need to take it properly. And that, that doesn't mean that they can immediately suspend any other precautionary measures. So why are we making such a fuss? It was, it was all ideological. Uh, you know, um, some in public health, they were still insisting that it would be ABC, abstinence be faithful and use condoms. After 30 years of showing that ABC was not working very well. Uh, so uh, it's, it's challenging. And you know, uh, all you have to do is look at COVID and you know, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of the same uh, with worse results and yet keeping on doing more of the same. And something has to change. And, uh, you know, I, I get it. Uh, yes, there are not enough vaccines and whatever. Well, uh, why are we not uh, lifting the patent protection and allowing the vaccines to be done uh, and distributed everywhere? Uh, well, because somebody has to pick up that model and uh, I guess... You know, it's not my job and I, and I have other things to do. But in all honesty, uh, uh, we cannot keep on doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So we did it for HIV and it worked. And my mantra is, if it's not working, we need to disrupt it. Well, and it just goes to show what ambition and hard work can achieve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the scars, and the scars too. Um, we're running low on time, but to close the show out, um, could you just tell us a little bit more um, just about specifically um, the clinic at uh, St. Paul's Hospital and, and the kind of work that you guys do and, and just a little more insight into that? Well, I think that the, the main principle for us has been, as I uh, uh, outlined earlier, uh, to try to meet our clients where the clients are at. So to illustrate that, uh, in, uh, um, in 1996, when the treatment became available, um, you know, I mean, we were 
delighted. Uh, the, the success of the strategy was obvious, but it created a lot of problems for us. First, the treatment was complex. Uh, multiple pills, multiple doses, uh, side effects were significant. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, earlier on when I referred to this issue, I purposely said uh, death rates declined precipitously among people engaged on treatment. What I didn't tell you is that they didn't change one bit among people who were not uh, 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 accessing treatment, uh, which means obviously uh, that there was a constituency out there that was not quite getting the message or the message was not getting to the people. And even if the message was getting to them, the access was problematic. So back in the day, we realized that, um, and this is, I think, where I broke the mold. Uh, you know, I, I was a science-based, medical, academic type of person, uh, but, but I became more of an, a, a, an implementer uh, somewhere along the line, uh, realizing that um, th there was a huge uh, implementation gap between what we knew and what we actually were doing. Uh, it was easy for me, Professor Montaner, stand up at the podium and say, you shall do this and shall do that. And when you do all of this, everything is going to be fine. And then I came back the next year and the year after and every year thereafter, and nothing changed. And the reality is that uh, sooner or later, uh, you had to come down from the podium uh, and you know, uh, uh, get your feet and hands dirty by going to the front line and understanding who is in trouble, why are they in trouble, and where do you meet people uh, in an environment that is safe and, and accessible to them, not to you. Now, I don't claim to be Mother Teresa myself, but, but working together with our colleagues here at St. Paul's and a number of others, uh, we develop programs, whether it's at uh, the downtown east side or uh, up in Prince George or wherever we needed to go to try to meet the needs of the various groups that we were trying to help. And you know, some of this is challenging because it's easy for uh, a consumer to say, I need a program that looks like this. And you know what? I run the provincial program and I have this amount of money uh, to you know, make it work. So I need to be creative. How am I going to make the gender specific and uh, socioeconomical specific and district specific and blah, blah, blah programs that are going to meet your needs. Obviously, we made progress. Obviously, uh, we don't run on a Maserati. We run on a, you know, VW or whatever. And, uh, and it's working very well. Uh, so, you know, don't, you don't need to go at the extreme. But what we've been able to do here at St. Paul's, but more importantly, throughout the province from, from the headquarters that we have here at St. Paul's, is to promote the development of both culturally, socially, economically sensitive programs that fit the needs of various people. So that's the reason why we became in, involved in uh, supervised injections, safer drug supply, um, uh, gender specific programs, and, and so on and so forth. Why? Because we needed to do that. Uh, four or five years ago, PrEP became an issue. PrEP is uh, uh, post exposure, uh, sorry, pre exposure pre-exposure prophylaxis. So what happens is this, uh, triple drug therapies were the mantra for treatment. Uh, new data emerged that showed that you can combine two drugs in one pill. And if you take it daily, sometimes less than daily, but it doesn't matter. But if you take it regularly, uh, uh, if you are exposed to HIV, it prevents acquisition of HIV. And believe it or not, it was a huge effort to get the, the authorities at the time to sign on to it. Why? Well, because um, quite frankly, uh, this was a luxury item. They was felt to be, oh, why are we going to do this for your patients when we don't do it for anybody else? I said, well, very simple, because we want to end the AIDS epidemic. And I want to do the one, to be the one to do it. Uh, and, and besides, it saves you money. And so eventually, Minister Dex, uh, came into power and he signed up uh, uh, for it immediately. He was very supportive. And guess what? Over and above treatment of prevention with implementation of provincially funded PrEP for people at risk, I'm talking about 
men who are sex with men predominantly, who were at the higher end of the risk spectrum, we have been able to decrease over two years, 30% new infections over and above treatment prevention, uh, which means that you know, we, we, we need to be strategic, but also we need to be open-minded on how we approach the specific populations uh, that need our help. And if you approach it with biases that necessarily exclude some or others, um, then you're not going to solve the problem. Yeah, I, just, I know it's funny. I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, I'm just enjoying myself so much. <laughs> you know, but you know, it's funny because um, one of the things I was talking about with um, you know my family and, and a few friends was that um, when it, when you're any discussion on um, HIV or AIDS for someone my age at 24 is really not something that we know a lot about. Um, well, we don't know a lot of we don't know a lot about a lot of stuff, but <laughs> particularly that, um, and that's why I think it's so important because how you pointed out earlier the fact that it, it's as an issue. It doesn't. It's uh, it, it's not sexy anymore. You know, there's so many other issues that those hot button issues that get the attention, and unfortunately, when you think about it from a political perspective, the things that get attention get money. You know, it, or get spending, and and that's yeah. It is know, what it is. It's fair to say that uh, your generation, uh, much like my children's generation, my children are in their thirties, uh, they. They grew up uh, in the post-AIDS era, despite the fact that, that there is no such a thing as the post-AIDS era. But, but, but we, we um, in the 80s and 90s, uh, with the success of the treatment, uh, in a way, some would argue we became our worst enemy. Well, I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, all I'm going to say is that we need to uh, reactivate public interest, uh, public understanding, of the significance of this, what continues to be a global pandemic, uh, so that, that we realize that uh, this is a pending assignment. Uh, it is not done, it's not a done deal. We, we, and we have the tools, and, and, and just to be clear, uh, 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 the treatment of HIV in the South of the world today uh, can be uh, uh, make a reality for somewhere between 50 cents to a dollar a day. So you can't tell me that that's not doable. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can subsidize it more or less or whatever, but you know, when you have millions of people in the south of the world living with HIV AIDS, this should not be uh, a matter of debate. It should be a matter of just let's do it and get it over with. Yeah, that's great. And I think actually, I think that's a good spot to, to end it. I think that's a good place. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, I it was kind of funny. I, I can't believe how fast it went by. It was the most interesting and fastest hour and a bit of my life that I went through. But uh, I was an absolute pleasure having you on here, and I certainly learned a lot. And it's definitely going to be one that I'm going to be tuning into uh, a few times to go over it again and again. But thank you again for being here, and um, hopefully in the future it'll be, it'll be nice to do one in person instead of uh, on Zoom. But you know, you got to do what you got to do. The time will come. That's right. Thank you so much. Thanks.